0: Welcome, church. We are in the book of Ephesians. We're in Ephesians chapter 4. And I neglected, once again, to find the page number in the pew in front of you, in the pew Bible in front of you. Someone finds that for me. Tell me where Ephesians 4, um, 11 to 16 can be found. I would appreciate that. Thank you, Matthew. Page 977 of your Pew Bible, if you would like to follow along. If you're new to our church, uh, one of the practices of uh, our preaching ministry is to really go almost verse by verse through the scriptures. So you'd be helped if you had that open. Just to know that what I'm saying is not based on my own authority, but based on God's word and God's word alone. Ephesians four, eleven to 16. Follow along if I, as I read. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. For building up the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith. And of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. All right, how many children do we have in the house today? C 5, 10, about 15 or so children. All right, children, when your parents were children, likely. When your parents were children, there was a commercial that we kept seeing advertising a special water gun called a super soaker. I imagine that many of you if you're in your 30s or 40s had a super soaker at least one of the super soakers. So so kids I'm going to ask you to do something real quick. Imagine this huge water gun. Now imagine this water gun was powerful enough that it was low if it was located in New York City right in the middle of Times Square. And you pumped it up, that's what you did, you had to pump it up. Pump pump pump, make the pressure. And when you press the trigger, it had enough power to go all the way across the United States, all the way over the heartland, not a flyover state, the heartland, all the way to the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco, California. Imagine if you had a super soaker does that, that strong. Now, imagine if you're in Times Square in New York City, and if it's, if, it's, if it's set up to land on the Golden Gate Bridge and all of a sudden someone comes by and pushes it just to the right. Just a little bit. Just a few degrees to the right. No one really notices it. It's like, oh, that's not a big deal. It's still going to fly over the heartland and land in the Golden Gate Bridge. And all of a sudden they press the trigger and it's released and it looks Like it's going to fly. And it looks, at least from the vantage point of those in New York City, like it's going to hit the target, the Golden Gate Bridge. But as it starts flying, it doesn't, doesn't go over Kansas City anymore like it used to or wherever it would have landed. It starts going north towards Iowa, but still it looks fine. And as it keeps going over the Rockies, it doesn't land in San Francisco. It doesn't even land in California. It lands somewhere in the middle of Oregon or Washington or maybe up there in Canada. It didn't hit its intended target because when, it was, when the trigger was pressed, it was already off. What happens when the aim of Christian discipleship is off? What happens when the aim of Christian discipleship is off? When people say they want this... But they neglect the truths revealed in God's word. And their aim, at least at the beginning, is just slightly off. What happens if we're unaware of the objects trying to dissuade us from Christian discipleship? What happens when we concoct our own means, our own pathways, our own ingenious ideas of Christian discipleship? And friends, when I say Christian discipleship, I'm simply saying following Christ. If your aim is off, if you're unaware of the obstacles in your way, and if you're devising your own way of Christian maturity, Christian discipleship, of following Christ, then I think you will end up not even knowing what Christian fruit looks like. You won't even know what to expect if you start off in the wrong place. Church, this is vitally important. This is huge when it comes to understanding the purposes of a Christian church. It's to understand what God has disclosed in his word when it comes to following Christ and growing up together in Christ. And so in this passage in Ephesians four, eleven to 16, we're taught on how to be disciples of Jesus. Our sermon has four points today. First of all, we're given the aim of discipleship. Secondly, we're given the threat to discipleship. Thirdly, the means of discipleship, and fourthly, the fruit of discipleship. The aims of discipleship, the threat to discipleship, the means of discipleship, and lastly, the, for, the, the fruit of discipleship, or you can say the results of discipleship. Look at look at me. Look with me, and at me. You can't do the same, can you? Bounce back and forth. Look at verses 11 to 13, the aim of discipleship. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints. We mainly focused on uh, the preceding verses uh, last week in Ephesians 4. So starting with verses 7, 8, 9, 10. And we got into 11 and 13 as well. And last week we saw that Christ has taken those who used to be his enemies. He's taken them captive for himself. He's won them over through his love, namely his love displayed on the cross. And now Christ has given these former captives as gifts back to his church. So, so Christ took rebels for himself. And now those who used to be against him, antagonistic toward Jesus and the purposes of God, have now become gifts and blessings to the church. Sinners became converts, which became gifts to the church. Now, each person is a gift. However, there are these foundational gifts where everyone else can use their gifts rightly and properly if they are on these foundational gifts of the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. And then, once people are converted... Through the ministry of the evangelists, who are really just proclaiming what the apostles and prophets proclaimed, some of them become shepherd teachers or pastors or elders. We think in the scriptures those words are largely used synonymously, and so in our church we use those synonymously. And it's now the shepherd teachers who equip each saint for the work of the ministry by caring for them and guiding these saints and teaching them sound doctrine. So, in a sense, the idea is like this: Church, imagine an unequipped Christian. Imagine tonight, seven thirty. The Chiefs are playing the Bills, and imagine the offense walks in the field. Patrick Mahomes, Travis Kelsey, are not even wearing shoulder pads. They're not even wearing a helmet. And they're not even uh, wearing any kind of cleats or, or um, shin guards. it's the wrong sport. Thigh guards, knee pads. They're not wearing any of that stuff. They would be ill-equipped to play the sport of football. They would get hurt. So how effective would he be if he was playing football with the improper equipment or no equipment at all? And so the church... If it has Christians who are ill-equipped for the work of the ministry, uh, they likely won't be very effective in ministry. And so this is a passage that's trying to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Equip Christians with sound doctrine to go and be effective for Christ's purposes. And when this happens, when the saints are equipped for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, the body of Christ is built up and Paul has said time and time again in the book of Ephesians and other places that the body of Christ is a church. Jesus loves his church. Jesus is connected to his church. He's tied to his church. He's married to his church. So much so that in Acts chapter 9, Jesus confronts Saul, who later is the apostle Paul. He confronts him. And he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting Me. Saul says, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Friends, Jesus is so connected, so tied to his church, that when his church is persecuted, he identifies with them. He says, why are you persecuting me? Because Jesus is the head, and the head cannot be disconnected from the body, the church. And so... Paul is taking this idea that we are the body of Christ. And Christ is the head of the church. And he's working through this. How to make a more healthy body. Because the head is fine. Christ is good. Christ is perfect. But the body needs to keep growing on in health. And so in verse 13 of chapter 4. Keep going. And and, and Ephesians 4. The aim of discipleship becomes even more clear. He says... Equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, making it more healthy. Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith. Paul's saying this is not an individualistic goal. Discipleship is a corporate exercise. Christian growth, Warnel Road, does not mainly happen in isolation, but it happens collectively. And he says... Not just the unity of the faith, but and of the knowledge of the Son of God. This oneness occurs by knowing Jesus the Son of God. We collectively are being built up as we obey Christ and have faith in Him. Uh, Not by performance, not by what we can do, but by faith and in knowledge of the Son of God. It all starts from the place of knowledge, from sound doctrine and knowing who Christ is. And he keeps pressing forward. Verse 13. And of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's the goal. That we would be mature in Christ. That we would be perfect like Christ is perfect. Well, there's the goal. Now, clearly, if you're reading this, you're saying, well, who is perfect but Christ?" Uh, you're, you're very right. But what God has done when he first, first breathed life into your darkened soul, when you became born again, he started this process of sanctification where you are made more and more to look like Christ, to think like Christ, to believe like Christ, to act like Christ, to love like Christ. And if you are in Christ this morning, that process has already been started. And so what God wants you to do is he wants you to look at, at texts like this. And he wants you to say, keep pressing on. Know that you are part of the body. And know that my plan for your sanctification involves other Christians who are part of the same body. So none of us will attain this full maturity in this lifetime. But the theologian F.F. F. Bruce commentating on this passage helps us out when he says that the goal is ultimately reached and the body of Christ has grown up sufficiently to meet the head himself. Then we'll be, then will be seen that full-grown man, which is Christ together with his members. That, spectac- that spectacle will not fully appear until the day when they are glorified together with him. But the expectation of that day will act as a powerful incentive to spiritual development in the present time. Paul knows that he himself will not even attain that full maturity. You notice how he says, until we all attain the unity of the faith. But Christians have that idea of being fully in Christ. in all of our actions, all of our thoughts, all of our desires, that that will happen. And that's supposed to press us on into maturity. Friends, true, mature, true maturity is found in people who know Christ. That's why Paul, I find it comforting that the, the great, mighty Apostle Paul includes himself in this passage. Until we all attain unity. You, Ephesian Christian, and me, the Apostle Paul. Not one of us is as mature as we want to be or ought to be. And Paul includes himself in that, own, in that group of, room, of people who have room to grow. And so, Werner wrote, I wonder if you, Christian, are you aiming at this type of maturity in your life? Are you pressing on in your own Christian walk to move forward, to become more and more like Christ? Or have you kind of become like stagnant water? Do you feel like your faith is just kind of at a standstill? Looking back, maybe, I don't know, a year or 10 years ago, Have you matured in the faith? Have you grown in your knowledge of the Son of God? I want to road as a church for the next 100 years or until Jesus returns. Let's have the fullness of Christ as the aim of our discipleship. That is the discipleship plan or aim here of the Apostle Paul. Secondly, we see that this aim of discipleship is under attack. It's under threat. Look at verse 14. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. This equipping needs to happen, and this proactive ministry needs to occur because of verse 14. So he's saying, equip the saints so they can grow into the fullness of Christ because there's a litany of adversaries and lies that want to carry you away. Do Christians need equipping? Because there's no such thing as neutrality in the Christian life. You're either having faith in Christ and growing, or your faith is diminished in some way. Now, your place in Christ never changes, but you're, in a sense, always growing into maturity or in some ways taking a couple steps back to immaturity. It's not very clear how that works sometimes. Sometimes you can think you're being more mature when you're going through something hard. But what really God is doing, he's just growing you in his trust. But Paul says here, in contrast to the mature man who is standing on the firm foundation of the knowledge of the Son of God, don't be like children. Tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. You see, children in the scriptures are often talked about in positive light. Blessing from the Lord, a heritage, quivers in your quiver holder thing. That is a, a quiver is a, is a holder thing, right? Arrows. arrows and a quiver, yeah. I got five of those arrows. I love them. They're awesome. They teach me a lot about Jesus and a lot about loving uh, others and childlike faith. Jesus welcomes the children. He rebukes his disciples for not welcoming the children. Uh, but we also see that uh, mature people, or grown-ups rather, can act like children. When it's said in a negative light, it says don't be so gullible like a children, like children can be. Stand firm on what you know to be true. When a wave of doctrine, come, when a wind of doctrine comes your way, that's new and that's not on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, don't so easily believe it. No matter how shiny the package is, stay firm on this foundation of the apostles and prophets. Be aware of those who are act in cunning ways, who like to deceive the church, much like Satan in the garden, whose words actually aren't all that wrong, but they're wrong enough to bring a curse upon mankind. See, Paul says that there's evil in this this world, and that Satan is like a lion looking for someone to devour, and that we need to be aware of his schemes. Ephesians 6 gets more into this, and so when we get there, we'll talk more about the schemes of the evil one. But for now, he's saying ground yourself on the knowledge of Jesus Christ for your growth as a Christian. You see, in in the West, this this doctrine, this every wind of doctrine doesn't come along and say, hey, you know, we're denying all the things that the Bible says. What happens, all these these different Christian groups, or or so-called Christian groups, they start off well. And they actually sound okay to the undiscerning ear. A lot of them happen in the late 1800s or early 1900s. So you think of Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses. You think of Christian scientists. They all bear the name of Christian. They all say they love Jesus, but their doctrines are off, denying that Jesus is God Himself. And that creates a group of people who no longer have the gospel. And when you don't have the gospel, you stand condemned in your sins. In the West, it pretty much has much as looked like this for the past 100, 150 years. Is that a church has starts off well, and then they kind of walk over to pragmatism, not looking at the doctrine of Scripture to design how they build their church, design how they do discipleship. And when they become pragmatic, they often individ, they often emphasize the individual or. As Carl Truman has called the psychologized self. And then autonomy becomes most important. And then the self becomes a God. And then churches begin to try to figure out how to organize themselves around some kind of unity of the self. Or they just simply die out. You can go through any downtown in many cities, you can see old church buildings now been converted to condominiums or apartments. Or preschools. Because people see no reason to give up their Sunday morning and meet anymore if they actually don't believe what the church was founded on. So church, part of being able to grow in your discipleship is not to be unaware of the threat to your discipleship. To be firmly confident in the knowledge of the Son of God. This doesn't mean you can't have lingering questions when it comes to certain matters of faith. Like maybe you wonder about your eschatology as I do sometimes. I wonder if I actually understand completely what God has revealed when it comes to how he's going to come back. I believe he will come back, Jesus. But the timing of that, the importance of Israel, sometimes I have questions about that. I don't think that's what the apostle's getting at here. He's saying you must have a firm foundation of who Jesus is. And if you're not yet yet a Christian, you're, you're gathered here among us, I'm so thankful that you're here. But let me just be very clear what the Bible teaches about what the gospel is. The Bible teaches that God is good, that God is holy, and God is perfectly loving. And yet we, mankind, have looked at his loving kindness, have looked at him as creator and said, we don't want your rule over us. And we have run from him as rebels. And God, in his mercy, has sent Jesus Christ. Both man, both God, the perfect son of God. The perfect son of man. And Jesus never sinned. Never rebelled against his heavenly father. And he went to pay the penalty for our sins. By dying on a cross. The perfect sacrifice. And God's wrath. His just wrath was poured out on his own son. And in him we have forgiveness of sins. Jesus rose from the dead three days later. After he was completely crucified. Showing that he has, he is God, and he has power over death and power over sin. And anyone who puts their trust in Jesus alone for their salvation will be saved. And that strife that all men and all women have with God will no longer be strife, but peace with God. And the wrath of God will no longer be on you because it's already been placed on Christ. And so, if you're here already and you're, you're not believing that message, let me encourage you. Today is a day of salvation. Believe today in this message. You will be saved. Please talk to me or, or some, a member of this church. We'd love nothing more than to give up our afternoon to talk to you and explain to you the truths of this gospel message. Warnell Road, I wonder for you in this past week, this past year, this past two years especially, has a knowledge of Jesus been enough for you? Are you believing even today that God's divine power has granted to you all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called you to his own glory and his own excellence? Is knowing Jesus enough for you when sin is crouching at your door? Do you run to other methods and other ways to keep you from sin? Is knowing the fellowship of Jesus enough for you when you're lonely? Is knowing Jesus enough for you when you're weighed down by your own guilt? Is knowing Jesus enough for you when you are mistreated for your own faithfulness? You see, church, we can withstand the winds of doctrine of the world, the human cunning, the sneaky, deceptive schemes of the evil one. More and more as we put our full trust in Christ, not only for our salvation, but all that pertains to life. This is God's discipleship plan for you. Knowing him is enough and knowing Jesus More and more growing to him as his follower, as his disciples, happens through verse 15. As we see the aim, complete, full person, full maturity, each one of us. So we've seen the threat. We know what it looks like not to achieve full maturity, be tossed around like a child. And so Warnel wrote, before we get into our third point, For the next 100 years or until Jesus returns, let's be aware of the threat to our Christian maturity. thirdly, before I get to that third point, I've developed a sense to tell when the air conditioner is not working. And it's off. Philip or somebody, do you mind putting it back at 70, I think, is what we agreed upon in our members meeting. Pretty sure. Can I get an amen? Can you all tell that too? Is it just me up here? Okay. The means of discipleship, verse 15. The means of discipleship. Verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Uh, the last part here, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. There, this is another way of saying what was written about in verse 13 about attaining the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So here is the aim of Christian growth, of becoming more like Christ. Reiterated, put in a different way. We are to grow up in every way into him who is ahead in Christ. But now he gives us the means of how we're going to do that. He told us what we should do or what we should aim at. He told us what's in danger of knocking us off course, what's in danger of, of knocking that super soaker in New York City off course a few degrees. Now he says how to do it. He says to speak the truth in love. So if you don't want to be immature, if you don't want to be tossed to and fro in the waves, he says speak the truth in love. He could have said a lot of things here. He could have said pray more, meditate on the scripture more, serve your brother and sister more, but instead he puts it like this. All those things would be good things. He says, speak to one another truth in love. And if you think about speaking, that necessitates some kind of listener. So as we walk through this short verse, think about listening to truth in love as well. Now, I wonder how many of you have heard the phrase, speak the truth in love before. Whether you're in the church, not a Christian, okay. I think we've all have heard that. I think most of us interpret it like this. I need to tell it like it is, but in a very kind way. I need to say something, but I need to be nice about it. I think as I talked to people this week about this passage, I I thought about myself. I think that's what we usually think. It's usually meant as a reaction when we see someone doing something harmful or sinful or even annoying We need to speak the truth in love. So I think we think of it like if someone we know is chewing food with their mouth open. We need to love someone enough in order to tell them, hey, I don't like it when I see your food when we're eating together. That's speaking the truth in love. But I think we need to recalibrate a little bit of of what that means. It doesn't merely mean one-on-one conversations or one-on-two conversations, giving someone truth in, in a kind way or loving them enough to say something hard to them. I think when the apostle writes truth here, he means truth. Truth with a capital T and every other truth that flows from the truth, the very truth he's been getting at. That Christ is the son of God and we need to grow up into knowledge of him. I also think it doesn't mean what we often interpret it to mean as one-on-one conversations. I think when we sing songs together like, yet not I, but through Christ and me, we are all collectively speaking, or in this case, singing the truth in love to one another. I think that what I'm doing to you right now is I'm speaking the truth in love right now. I think the many conversations that were before service, the many that are going to happen after service, will be marked by speaking the truth, declaring the good things of God, especially starting with Christ in love. So, speaking the truth in love is, is a lot bigger than I think most of us make it out to be. So, I think that under this, this point, there are three important things to know if you're going to speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love because Warner Road, this is if you're a member of our church, this is what you've committed to do. You've committed Caleb to speak the truth in love with your brothers here. Kaylee has committed to speak the truth in love with her brothers and her sisters here. We're all a part of this. We're all one body, united together, joined together. We don't really have an option here. We're following the head. The head says this. So what is what does it mean to speak the truth in love? Well, he, here are three things about speaking the truth in love that I think will be helpful for us. One is know, know what is right. Know what is right. There's, there's a heavy emphasis on here of truth. Speaking what is true. So as, an, as an obligation, as a love to one another, speak what is truth to one another. So you see someone going down an, a harmful path. Maybe they're entertaining a, a doctrine that isn't in accordance with Scripture. You have an obligation to speak the truth. It's right. God says it. I, I know many of us. Let me pause on that. Second one. I'm bleeding in the second one. Second one. It, it, this is often costly. Speaking the truth in love is is often costly. Jesus says that a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house beazelable, how much more will they malign those of his household? And so Jesus says that if you pursue this path of speaking the truth in love, this means of Christian discipleship, It will at times be costly. People will not like you pointing out truth to them. And you yourself often won't like receiving this truth in love. Friends, know that and don't be surprised when it costs you something. It could even cost you a relationship. Someone could give you a cold shoulder. Someone could turn on you. Friends, it is costly to speak the truth in love. Thirdly, know that it's rewarding. Know that it is rewarding. Uh, people may malign you. Speaking the truth in love may uh, cost you relationships, but know that Jesus says that being his disciple, picking up your cross and following him, that you have, a, he says, for great is your reward in heaven. When they persecute you, when they revile you, when they say all kinds of things, because you are following me. And Jesus says not to have fear. Nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will be not be known. And yet, Christian, your obligation is still to speak the truth in love. Know that it is right, it is often costly, and know that it is rewarding. It is part of this eternal weight that is increasing on our account that will be revealed on that last day. Friends, this is the call of the disciple, to speak the truth in love of one another. This is from the beginning of Acts chapter 6, as we see the church unfold. uh, Acts chapter 6, verse 7 says, the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of priests even became obedient to the faith because the apostles were proclaiming truth, creating disciples, and the disciples were speaking the truth in love to one another. Friends, this obligation that we have to one another is the same uh, discipleship the means of discipleship that has been that has been happening for two thousand years now and so i wonder about you have you been speaking the truth in love when's the last time you encouraged someone with something that is true because you love them uh, when is the last time you with curiosity approached someone that you wonder if, if they're not in a good spot or maybe they're believing something erroneously friends this is an obligation we have When you hear the gospel, when your life is changed, you often want to bear this out with other people. One thing I've noticed just the last 10 years of of Christian ministry, and and to be honest, in my own heart as well. One hindrance to this truth in love is my own insecurity. That people actually don't love me that much. One of the things I've noticed in my own ministry is I've sought to speak the truth in love with others is that other people's insecurity that they think that saying something difficult means that I don't care for them or love them. And friends, I'm not above this too. How many of us are reproved or rebuked by a friend and say, "Oh, that felt great. Thank you. Sign me up for another one." It takes a little bit of time, doesn't it? It's because we God and His kindness is just chipping away at our pride. And so, Warren wrote, "Let's not be a church." That makes it really difficult for other brothers and sisters to speak the truth in love. None of us are fully secure in the love of other people, nor should we be. None of us are, none of us should be in that, that kind of security, but we are secure in the love of Christ. And while your pastors might not measure up, nor your other church members, I think you have, as a church here, the obligation to trust. The good intentions of those in our midst. So when we do this speaking the truth, as we seek to do this more faithfully, let's not do it with an air of suspicion. Let's, in line with 1 Corinthians 13, let's believe all things. Believe the good intentions of our brothers and sisters. In God's wisdom, he has designed it so that people who love you imperfectly will point out to you your flaws and your sins. And sometimes they'll get it completely wrong. And then he'll say, you know what? You love them anyway. And so, friends, as we grow up together in maturity, let's make it easy to be approachable. Let's not make it so difficult. Let's approach people because we love them enough to see them to grow up into the body of Christ. That they might know Christ better. Knowing that this is God's good design for our own discipleship. See, the truth is we're all a bunch of insecure people, aren't we? Every time someone speaks to us, or even if they don't speak to us, we all we start questioning like, do they really love me? Friends, let's be secure in our love for that, of Christ's love for us and let it overflow to know that people have good intentions for us in this church. Let's strive to be more and more secure in Christ's love for us and World Road members' love for us so that we can receive good feedback. As I said, the speaking the truth in love is more about one-on-one conversations. It's about the broader life of the church. So prioritize the things that our church has for you. So Sunday morning, when we gather here together, this is an exercise of speaking the truth in love together. Uh, throughout the week, we've emphasized in the last several years of our church, Christian hospitality. Open up your home. Make it a normal practice in your home to have people over and speak the truth in love. Uh, Our midweek gathering, which we do in the first and third weeks of every month, is a great opportunity to come, to gather, to hear the the truth spoken in love. To hear about different missions, ventures that our our church is partnering with in uh, northern Iraq or Central Asia or India and other places. To hear about how certain families are in very difficult times right now. It's an opportunity to hear that, to speak the truth in love, so that on Wednesday night, when you hear that, you can go back out throughout the week, send an email, send a text, or phone call, We do old school phone call, or even pop by for a visit. Also, get involved in a growth group. Andrew Evans is going to lead a growth group uh, uh, with men. That's going to go through a book by Ray Ortland, helping to bring to light the evils of pornography. In that group, there will be much truth spoken in love. I'm leading two groups through the book of Romans. And there we are in the book of Romans. We're speaking the truth of love together. Dalton's going uh, to lead a growth group uh, based on a book by Joe Rigney called, Dalton, what is it called? Strangely Bright. There will be lots of truth spoken in love. Rachel Ob- Obenhaus is likely going to read uh, go through a book. And there will be lots of truth spoken in love there. And just get involved in the things that our church has for you. At the same time don't rely on the church to start your relationships of truth spoken in love now let me just try to speak really clearly here but also i hope you hear my tone in this when we have people come to our church one of the first things they and and they've been in other churches one of the first things they ask about is our small groups ministry what do you guys do for small groups now that's a great question because a lot of good things happen in formalized small groups. At the same time, churches do not have to have small groups. It actually has only been popular in the last 20, 30, maybe a little beyond that, years. Small groups are great. And I just want to say to you, One Road member, if you want to meet with other Christians throughout the week, you have my full blessing to do that. Start your own group of people that meet with each other throughout the week. And if you want help finding other Christians that want to do that with you, please come to me or come to Philip or Andrew or Matt. We'd love to point you toward other Christians. But this is a normal Christian thing to do. You do not have to rely on me or get my approval to meet with other Christians throughout the week. I encourage you to do this. I think that as we understand who Christ is, as we understand the means of discipleship, this will be a natural, organic thing that will happen in the church. Now, sometimes it needs a little bit more of, of the trellis, if you will, or a little bit more formality to it. And that's why we have growth groups. But our idea with growth groups is of a concentrated time. And then for that time to end after four weeks or eight weeks or whatever, and then for Christians to be doing this among themselves as a normal part of their Christian discipleship. And every time I'm, re- I'm about ready to throw in the towel in this kind of, I think, biblical view of Christian discipleship, I hear about different groups being started or people meeting with each other. And I just want to encourage you, one Road, just press into that. So if you're feeling like I need more regular interaction with other Christians, call a Christian up. Ask if they want to meet. I meet with the same group of guys every other Wednesday morning. I'm about to start meeting with another group of guys for my own accountability and sanctification every other Wednesday at lunchtime. I didn't wait for anyone to tell me to do that. I just initiated because I know that I have great needs and I want to grow into Christ-likeness. So let me encourage you. Just kind of free you up to do that. You will be blessed and you will be a blessing to other people. Another way you can do it is, apart from these intentional kind of discipleship relationship, is to... Uh, and have intentional friendships, just to hang out with people, kind of ad hoc, just in the middle of the week. Also, read books. We have four books that in our church, you can uh, find them that really shape what our, our discipleship mentality is. I'll give them to you now. One is called Trellis in the Vine by two Christians in Australia. The other one is called Compelling Community by Mark Dever and Jamie Dunlop. Another one is called Side by Side, which talks about how we are all, in a sense, counselors, counseling one another by a man named ed welch and another one is called the gospel comes with a house key written by rosaria butterfield if you're more interested in how our church views discipleship look into those books and lastly under this third point before we get to our last is that don't neglect the children in our church do not neglect the children in our church it's very close to the heart of jesus is to look at children in the eye say know their names and say their names I was so encouraged. Uh, uh, We uh, we got a letter this week from a Warnel child. And um, uh, this child went through each person in our family. Just a lot. There's seven of us. And uh, about Katie, uh, this particular child said, thank you for always smiling at me and talking to me. And so from her perspective, that means a lot. And so when you think about the discipleship culture here, think about the ability to speak truth Even simple truth in love to the children at Warnell. Let's not neglect them. Warnall Road for the next 100 years or until Jesus returns, let's speak the truth in love together. Fourthly and lastly, verse 16, you see the fruit of discipleship. Look at verse 16. From whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Christ is the head. The church is his body. We're all joined and held together by every joint, and we are all being equipped to work more and more properly. And then this odd verb which says it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Do you catch that here? So Paul's saying that if you do these things, if you speak truth in love, the body will grow. So if you love each other well, if your aim is the fullness of Christ and to grow up into him the head, you just will grow. So what's the discipleship? What's the fruit of discipleship here? Is that we will all grow into Christ likeness, being built up in love. You see that there, it says makes the body grow. You do these things, you make, there's no 20-step plan here. You don't have to have formalized whatever. They're not bad. But if you do these things, if you have an environment of a church that speaks the truth in love, that will make the body grow. Friends, that's God's discipleship plan for Warner Road Baptist Church. That's what it was laid out 100 years ago. Friends, the end goal is to glorify God in all things. Now, our purposes in that is to glorify God by speaking, by declaring, by testifying to the goodness of Christ to one another so that we would build each other up in love. This is the heart of Christ for his church, that we would all be united around the same purpose, that we would all continue to grow together to be more and more mature. So if you remember last week in our sermon, we talked about how God's presence was in the garden. God's presence was in the temple. And now God's presence, then God's presence dwelt in Jesus. And now God's presence dwells with his church. We are the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ. Friends, as we continue to speak to one another in love, look around and watch how Christ grows each individual member. Watch how he matures us in the faith. What a joy it is to pastor a church that wants to be like Christ. Friends, it's been a joy the last four years to see how we all have collectively, through difficult times and through joyful times, grown into Christ's likeness, into him who is our head. Friends, let's not move the super soaker one degree to the left or one degree to the right. Our aim must be the glorification of Christ. And the building up of his church in love. Our aim, our means must be the same. As we see what will happen as God is revealed in his word. In his word as we grow up into Christ's likeness. As we conclude here, I wanted to read a portion of our last hymn together. And then I'll have a moment, silent moment of reflection. And then we'll pray and sing our last song. This is what Paul is getting at, and he's going to get at in the rest of the book. He says, we see here in our last song, Christ be all. I am poor, and I have nothing. All my deeds cannot avail, but Christ endured the Father's crushing. He bowed his head as mercy bled, peace to prevail. He bowed his head and mercy bled, peace to prevail. We are all sinners saved by Christ." And when we stand at the foot of the cross, the only rightful feeling we should have is, is humility and praise of Christ. Spend some moment of silent reflection before I leave, before I close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the truths revealed here. Lord, we thank you that this church 100 years ago was founded on the truths of the gospel. Lord, we pray that we would be a church that is continuing to be faithful to that call. We pray that we'd be a church that speaks the truth in love to one another. And so we pray that, Holy Spirit, you would work in our lives to do that. We pray that you be glorified as we sing to you now. In Christ's name, amen.